Welcome to Building the Future. I'm your host, Kevin Horick. You can check out new episodes of the show every Tuesday and Thursday at 2 p.m. If you missed an episode or want to get more information about the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Andrew Weinrich. He's a serial entrepreneur. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on the show. You have a ton of experience in kind of uh, the space, but maybe before we kind of get into kind of everything that you're involved in, maybe let's get to know you a little bit better and start off with where you grew up. I grew up in Westchester, okay. uh, out, outside of New York City. Okay. Um, I went to Penn. Okay, what did you uh, take there? I studied history. Okay, and what made you want to take history? I love history. I, I love reading about, um, it, my focus was American history. And okay. I, um, I really didn't think about a major in the context of what would suit a career. I thought about a major in the context of what would be interesting. No, I, I think that, that makes a lot of sense. I, I think it's also hard unless you really know what you want to do to actually just pick something and go study it, right? So, and I think history has always kind of fascinated me as well. So I, I totally get why, why you did that. Um, you also went to uh, the Fordham law University uh, Law School. Yeah. So yeah. what made you kind of go into law? You know, when I when I graduated from Penn, a lot of people that go to the University of Pennsylvania find themselves on Wall Street afterwards because okay. of of the Wharton program, um, which is both a, a undergraduate and a graduate program. I was in neither, but I um, I was in the, the College of Arts and Sciences, but I was um, intrigued by Wall Street and I couldn't figure out what else to do. And I joined um, Merrill Lynch in their investment banking program. And I was miserable. Okay. And I was um, pretty focused on starting a business, but um, I couldn't seem to get anything off the ground. Okay. And so a year into being on Wall Street, I, um, I decided to go to law school. And it, it, was, it was interesting because I, I remember vividly my first day when they bring all the students together um, and someone stood up at the podium after welcoming us and asked, how many of you, by show of hands, have no idea why you're here? <laughs> and, Interesting. Um, and I fell into that group of, you know, I don't know about no idea, but certainly it was, you know, for lack of a clear direction on what else I wanted to do. Sure. No, I, I think that's great. So you come out of law school. Walk me through kind of what you ended up doing right out of school. So again, at law school, I, I had these designs about starting a business. Sure. Um, and, but I was not able to get the traction I wanted and I ended up looking for a job very late. I found myself um, as a attorney working with Pfizer okay. on, at the time, what was the largest um, uh, antitrust case. I mean, they had hundreds of attorneys on this case and in one form or another. And um, I, um, I mean, it's not like I did anything substantive. I, I was involved in document discovery, which basically meant I was a professional daughter. I had these stickers that I would put on documents 
you know, that came from different places, whether they were in fact subject to discovery or not. And again, I started thinking about starting a business. This time I think I was a little bit more thoughtful or purposeful. Okay. Um, there was a job with a um, PC clone manufacturer in literally in Manhattan. And um, I, I'm not sure whether it was because of their size or because they were paying so little, but there were not a lot of applicants for the role of general counsel at this um, technology company. So okay. with relatively no, relatively little experience, I got the job and I helped the company prepare for a small cap public listing. Interesting. And right before the listing, uh, right before the company went public, I left to start Six Degrees. Okay, interesting. So for people that ha haven't heard of Six Degrees, what exactly was it and, and how did you kind of come to, you know, start this up so while i was there i put together i was part of putting together a group of people that met in the evenings for the purpose of constructing ideas okay with this idea that we would all want to leave our jobs um and we so we brainstormed ideas and and we over time refined the parameters of the ideas that we would come up with Sure. And one of them was um, if we come up with an idea, it should be something where if an existing entrenched player with a brand came to the space, we wouldn't be so disadvantaged um, that we would be swamped by the existing player. So, for example, someone said, let's build a sports website. Sure. And the response to that is, yeah, but, but ESPN and Sports Illustrated will um, – uh, are existing brands that will have huge presence. Now, in fact, that was a bad argument because in virtually every vertical, people invented new ways of do, doing things, new brands, new communities. So they're really, you know, that, those were our parameters. I don't know if they were the, you know, if, if they were the right ones, but one of the things we came around to was this idea of building something that could only be created on the web. This is, you know, 95, 96. Sure, very early on. And I came up with this idea that if everyone could index their relationship in a single place, that you could see the people you don't know through the people you do. Sure. And in fact, that's not a new concept. That's how people have networked since the beginning of time, right? Sure. That's how you say, how do I find a doctor? Well, who do I know that knows a doctor? Who do I know that knows a lawyer? Or that's literally what blind dating is, a blind date is what I would call your second degree. It's not someone you know, it's someone that knows someone you know. Sure, what, right. was, what was revolutionary was if everyone all of a sudden had access to a network and could store data in a central database, and if the data they stored was in essence their contact managers, and if there was a methodology to validate that in fact, um, Andrew knows Kevin, Kevin knows Andrew, and this is how they know each other. Well, then all of a sudden, there's this ability to fundamentally change or accelerate the path of networking. And if you think about what a social network is today, the, the central piece of every social network is the contact manager. Sure. Whether, whether that's, right, there's some notion of people with relationships and extending their reach from the contact manager. So we filed a patent on that notion, which um, when we subsequently sold the business, that patent eventually found its way to 
uh, to LinkedIn, now part of uh, Microsoft's patent portfolio. Uh, Reid Hoffman. I mean, it, the the I, I think it's really the seminal patent in the social networking space because we define this notion of how you would index relationships and what you could do with them. Um, so it was really the very first online social network. And that was a company called Six Degrees. Sure. And then they got acquired by Ustream, correct? So Six Degrees was acquired um, in 1999 by a public company called Ustream Media Networks. Okay. And did they keep the platform kind of around or, or how did that kind of play out? So they did for some time. I left I left the company. I mean, one of the challenges of, of Ustream was um, when the bubble burst, Ustream had um, uh, debt obligations and they had, um, I mean, I think, you know, they had, like a lot of internet companies when the bubble burst, they needed additional equity financing to, um, to keep going. So um, after the, the bubble burst, uh, they ultimately had to dispense with a lot of their assets. Right. And so they sold off a number of their assets. Sure. Hence why, like you just mentioned a few minutes ago, the patent kind of went to LinkedIn and or eventually found its way to LinkedIn. And, and, and that that's actually really cool, right? Like that you were that kind of early on in the space, right? Because that was well before, you know, the MySpaces and the Friendsters and obviously well before Facebook, right? So that's really cool. Well before, yeah. Yeah, we were, I mean, we were a full, really a full decade before. Yeah, like very, uh, very Facebook. early what, on, yeah. One of, the, one of the things, you know, when people ask, well, what, what was it like to be on Six Degrees? I mean, I think we were, we were certainly one of, if not the largest community site in the late 90s, but one of the things people don't realize if they weren't on it is we had no pictures. Interesting. And the reason we had no pictures is because the people using our service had no pictures. Right. And a lot of, in fact, you know, I tell the story of um, where we evaluated because we had incoming requests, what would be involved with putting together an assembly line if people were to mail in digital, not digital, people were to mail in photographs. We, sure. were, to scan, we were to scan them in and then associate them with a profile. And what people don't realize is people didn't have digital cameras. No, or scanners it, at home, right? Like, or, or, or scanners. And, and so, you know, what happened was years later, we wake up and um, every phone comes with a camera. Yeah. And that fundamentally reinvented a lot of things, but one of them was the social network. And the social network became as much of a place for you to share pictures and videos um, as it was simply to explore outward people from a contact manager. Sure. So I, I'm curious then, because you, you've done a ton of stuff since, you know, Six Degrees got acquired and you moved on, and we don't have time to kind of cover it all, but do you maybe want to kind of give me and the listener a quick overview of your career before kind of you ended up starting kind of, you know, kind of what you're doing now. So my, my focus has always been trying to figure out what's the next trend? What's okay. the next macro trend? Where's the next area of massive disruption? Okay. And so, so I started a number of businesses since, um, and they all share that common thread. So after six degrees, I started a company, 
that was designed to bring Wi-Fi to public places. So you, you probably take it for granted, but that when you walk into a coffee shop or a hotel or an airport, there's a back-end system that authenticates users, uh, provisions bandwidth. And so before Wi-Fi was in public places, but it was pervasive in corporate environments, sure. I, I thought that was an inevitability. A few years later, before political campaigns and nonprofits were raising money online as opposed to at, you know, fat cat dinners, um, I thought that it would be an inevitability that political campaigns would run all of their outreach, building community and fundraising online. And I built a company that was designed um, to service political campaigns and nonprofits. Before there was a smartphone, sure. I, I built a company focused on mobile dating because I thought that desktop online dating didn't really make sense because people spent more time in front of their computer than they did on the dates. And so the question was, could we get to a place where um, there would be a much faster, seamless experience? And could we uh, even suggest places that were equidistant from two people for them to meet in real time? Interesting. And, and so in fact, we had the challenge because we, we started this even before there was the iPhone um, and an Android device of actually needing to reverse triangulate the position of people. Which would have been I, really tricky, actually, at the time. We did it. We, yeah, we that's did awesome. It. I mean, we we were reading, you know, we were reading lat, latitude longitudes of cell towers, and then matching that up against um, a database that allowed us to identify the positioning of people. That's cool. Um, so uh, then we had a, um, and then we had a uh, a company that sold a mobile CRM solution. So. Again, once there were smartphones, being able to figure out where people are and um, and message them, you know, they're driving by a physical a physical location, being able to message them um, based on where they are. Again, um, that's a business we ultimately sold to IBM. That was a back end uh, mobile CRM company. That's awesome. Um, so that's been my focus. My and my focus, and then you know, getting involved in other startups, investor, advisor, uh, always trying to. Um, trying to be involved in things that I think reflect um, ideas around disruption, about massive change. Sure, but I, I think too, and like this kind of leads into kind of what you're doing with Andrew's roadmaps, is you're doing a lot of stuff and you're giving away kind of a lot of content. Um, and, and so I'm kind of curious to know, and, and just for the listener, to kind of dive a bit deeper into kind of what you're doing now because you're running a podcast and you have a video series coming up and you do a bunch of kind of events and boot camps and stuff like that. So do you kind of want to maybe give us a bit more kind of dive deeper into kind of exactly what you're doing today? Sure. So I, I have a, uh, a boot camp okay. called Andrew's, Andrew's Roadmaps. And I, I, I had found myself, which we've had, um, several hundred entrepreneurs come through. Sure. I found I found myself speaking with lots of entrepreneurs, and essentially getting two questions. Okay. And the the, the two questions are um, fall into these categories. How do I do this, and how much of this do I personally need to understand? Okay. And, and so, if we take a step back, I have 
you know, I try to identify what are the attributes you see in great entrepreneurs and what makes for someone who is capable of building a great business versus someone who always talks about wanting to build a business but sure. never does anything, or someone who actually gets going but, but um, is unsuccessful. And you begin to see these threads in people. So the first, um, the first question is, um, how much do I need to know? I think there is a core level of competency an entrepreneur needs to have in every discipline to be successful. Okay. So you don't need to be a programmer, but you need to understand programming. Sure, that makes sense. You don't, you don't need to be a marketer by, by background, but if you've never run a keyword campaign, or if you have no idea what the difference between a CPM, a CPC, a CPL, a CPA is, you're not gonna be able to manage someone running a paid acquisition campaign. Right. And so the idea of the bootcamp initially is to say, look, there are these minimal levels of proficiency you need in every discipline. I can't make you an expert in every discipline, but I can tell you where the bar is. Sure. I can tell you that if you don't get to this place, you will not be successful. So this is, you know, you hear it all the time, I have a great idea, and, um, but I, I can't hire a programmer. Like, first of all, they're too hard to find, and even if I find one, I don't know what to tell them. I'm just gonna outsource this. Well, those companies almost all fail. Yeah, fair. Right? That's interesting. So, yep. and, and same dynamic you have with, look, I, you know, I, I'm, I know how to build stuff, but I can't market it. I can't come up with any you know, sense of, of how to distribute it. So I'll just use an agency to solve that. Those companies almost all fail. Yeah. So, I, and by the way, the same is even true when you raise money. I, I, you can't trouble me with what's the difference between an equity round or a debt round, it's too confusing. I, it's too much for me, I'm just gonna outsource that. My lawyer will solve that, or my friend will solve that. The, the great entrepreneurs establish this, what I call this minimal level of competency in every discipline. And I don't really see exceptions to that. So what I say is, well, I can give you all that in two days. I can't make you an expert, but I can set the bar for you in two days. And that's what the boot camp does. Okay, interesting. No, I, I think that's like super valuable, right? So how do people get, you know, and come to the boot camp? Like, do I have to contact you and, you know, you'll, I fly you out we, to we, my city? No, or? no, no, no. We, we announce, we have two different types of, of boot camps. One we charge for, one we don't. Okay. We, we announce dates periodically on the website. The ones that we don't charge for is application only. Oh, interesting. Uh, sponsors cover the cost, and the ones we do charge for, um, you know, we come to a city and then we charge. Sure. No, that makes a lot of sense. So, I, I'm looking on your website now. It doesn't look like you have any coming well, we have up it, right we now. Have it, but... we, we will shortly announce the next dates. Okay, so sometime in, in you have some more coming up in 2017. I guess is what I'm trying to get at. Um, but likely at the end of 2017 or very early 2018. Okay, no, that that's really great. I, I also think it's that's really cool of you that you do kind of a video Q and A kind of Facebook Live type type thing. So, do you want to maybe talk quickly about, about that and how people can kind of tune into some of those that are coming up? I mean, what we have, where most of our focus has been, is not on the live on Facebook Live. We do that occasionally, but on um, a podcast okay. that we've been producing called Predicting Our Future. Okay. 
And the idea of predicting our future is, instead of me just interviewing successful entrepreneurs and hearing about what they're doing, what I try to do is identify verticals that I think entrepreneurs should pay attention to. And if you're thinking about starting a business, you should pay serious attention to. Gotcha. And so let me give you a little bit of background on that. And sure. I, um, so, you know, I'm not someone who believes that if there was no Bill Gates, we wouldn't have a computer on every desktop. Or if there was no Steve Jobs, we wouldn't have iPhones. Or sure. if there was no Elon Musk, we wouldn't have electric vehicles. I, I think entrepreneurs can accelerate the course of history, but there is a little bit of an inevitability to the fact that we were all gonna have computers and smartphones and we will all have electric cars with or without these great entrepreneurs. Sure, I, I agree with you for sure, it makes sense. And so if you're thinking about starting a business, putting your surfboard in a place where a wave is about to come in and lift all surfboards makes a lot more sense than just randomly coming up in a, with an idea and having no context around it. Sure. So what I do is, for example, I did a series on um, factory built homes and I said, isn't it peculiar that everything today is made um, in a factory from your phone to, um, to your shoes, to your lamp, but houses by and large are not. Yep. And is that an inevitability that 20 years from now or 30 years from now that not just every house but every apartment building will be made inside in a factory? And then what I did is, is I went out and I interviewed some, um, I, I interview actually, you know, 20 people that are experts that either have venture financing or all over the world that are experts in, in this space. And from those people, I put together essentially a narrative. Okay. And, and that narrative describes what's happening now and what the future might look like. So, and then I'll do the same for other verticals. Verticals where I think entrepreneurs, less obvious, but super exciting places to consider, is there an opportunity for me? Interesting. It, and and uh, it sounds like, at least when we were talking a little bit before the show, that you're working on kind of the, a, an entire series on, on kind of the future of the smart home. And that's something that's always kind of fascinated me and kind of scared me at the same time because, you know, I work in tech as my kind of day job. and. I understand how cool this stuff is and I played with some of the stuff and it's very cool. But when you put in kind of like some of that stuff could get hacked, it kind of freaks me out a little bit. So I'm kind of curious to know about what are you covering in the series and then I want to get into a bit of your thoughts on kind of the future of the smart home. Yeah. So, you know, the hacking concern is is definitely real. Like, you know, if, if you think about, um, Forget about technically how you would hack um, something in your home. Sure. Ima imagine your home's hacked and you set your heat at 72 and someone else sets it at 86. You yep. know, imagine you go to bed at night and you turn off the lights and it's hacked and your lights all go on. Like, you know, now those are relatively innocuous or can be innocuous, but you could imagine how, you know, you're water heater could eventually be hacked and you're, you you can imagine how someone could 
be up to really nefarious things, I don't really drill into that. What, what okay. I do, what I do is is I say, first of all, the when most people think about a smart home today, they think about you know a Nest thermostat or yep. they think Honeywell thermostat or they think about a doorbell. But what I try to do is say, well, let's let's approach this and really think as far into the future as we can. What what is is there a way that this improves my life? Is there a way that literally the way I live my life day-to-day changes because the home gets smart? So for example, does the home develop a persona on me? Does the home know that that um, I'm trying to um, I'm trying to reduce my stress and so adjust the lights sure. and adjust the music and perhaps there's white noise in my room or adjusts, um, adjust the temperature to reflect what I'm trying to achieve in my life. And does the house get so smart that it's able to have sensors at every point of a staple? By a staple, I mean your milk, your bread, your toilet paper, your laundry detergent, that as soon as I'm done consuming them, they're automatically replenished. A sure. signal goes out to a store and they come in. And does do we get to a place where even it, th- there's wearables that are monitoring my health and my diet is um, reflected based on my health and my diet is a function of the meals that are in my fridge, which consist of ingredients that are in my fridge, which are dynamically updated based on um, based on the state that I'm in. And so now all of my, my meals are, um, are set in the cloud based on data abstracted from the home. So is, and we could keep imagining how this works where the home is designed to help me live a better life and not just um, to be a place for shelter. Sure, and I, I think I was reading an article about there was a startup or at least I can't remember exactly what it was called, and I wish I, I knew it better, but they were basically saying that eventually, you know, you could just, to your point, like, you'd have these groceries, and somebody would legitimately just, like, come into your home during the middle of the day, and you could maybe watch them on a camera or something, or, you know, to make sure they don't take anything from you or, or whatever, but they could, like, restock your fridge and put away all your stuff in your home, and it, and then you get home and it's done, right? And, you know, in, in some ways, like, we already let people come in and clean our homes and do a handful of other things, right? So I think, why not I think stock your fridge? And I, I think that's an inevitability. I mean, a company tried that in the 90s where instead of you having your refrigerator in your kitchen, your refrigerator was in your garage. Okay, and, interesting. And, and it worked exactly the way you described it. But I think what you just described, which is whether it's a drone shows up sure. and is putting your in your um, your grocery shopping in some um, container, refrigerated container that's outside your home, or whether a delivery person comes in, and the delivery person is always on their best behavior because there's a camera monitoring them. The the I mean, quite literally, the door opens when it detects some type of ID. Sure. And then this person is monitored on the camera to the point where they're putting everything away in your refrigerator and in your pantries. 
uh, and in your pantry. Um, yeah, I think I think that's some form of that is an inevitability. Sure. I also really like the idea of, and I think it was Google or, or someone we were talking about it a number of years ago that they kind of envisioned a future where your 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 smart car would know that based on like traffic and how far away you're parked, whether you're at the office or if the car's in the garage, and it would know your calendar and said like okay, you need to be at this meeting downtown and you live 20 minutes drive, but there's a bit of traffic, so we need to leave 30 minutes. And it literally just like picks you up either in front of your office and, you know, takes you wherever you need to go. Like stuff like that is completely fascinating to me. And I I know some people kind of think that's creepy, but like to me, that convenience is like I'm dying for that kind of now, you know? instead Instead of saying the word convenience, it, it, what I think of is mindshare. What I think of is interesting. Okay, there are thousands of decisions you make on a daily basis. Sure, little decisions. Like for example, what's the weather like? What do I need to wear? What time do I need to leave for this meeting? Is this meeting running late? Do I need? Is there traffic? Do I need to call the car earlier? Is the subway running late? Do I need to leave earlier to get to the subway? Is there anything going on outside? And all of these decisions consume brain power. Sure. And, and what you're saying is, if your to-do list is in the cloud, if your calendar is in the cloud, if, um, if the, the actual substance of the meeting, do I need to be dressed up for this meeting or not, yeah. is, in the, is in the cloud, then it's possible that all of these decisions just get made for you. Sure. And, and that's the instance where the car shows up five minutes earlier because they, it knows that there's traffic. And a bell goes off, you know, in your, it's not even a bell, it's a gentle voice that comes on over your speaker saying, listen, we're pushing up your meeting and the car is gonna be here shortly. Yep. And, and all of those things, I don't think they're creepy, they free your mind to think about stuff that matters. Sure, no, I 100% agree. And I, I know like I have a buddy that has those like um, lights that you can control with your phone and. It's funny because he has it tied up to where like every morning it, it changes the color based on like how the weather is going to be that day. Right. And it's again, it's kind of a simple example. But if you don't have to really pick up your phone to know it's going to be sunny today because the, the light turns on orange or, or whatever. Right. It's pretty cool. It's, I think that's awesome. And I think I, I think, you know, those things. um Dynamic lighting, lighting to reflect the mood you you're in or the mood you want to be in. Sure, um, I, I think those things are coming. Yeah, very well. In some ways, it's like it's already you could already start seeing those some of that stuff here. creep in, the, right? Because things, like you have Alexa and right. Google Home that if you That's ask right. it what's the weather and what's my schedule today, like they're already kind of doing it, but you need to prompt it, right? That's right. And what what we're talking about is. It's what we're talking about is sort of the cloud looking after you. Right. And I get why people would find that creepy. And I get all of the concerns. You know, the, the, the essence of my podcast is not to address all of those concerns or to say to people, don't worry. It's to spark imagination. Sure. Well, because and companies, right? You're basically saying, like, here's where the world is going. Do you want to build a startup where the world is going? That's right. If you believe that a rising tide will lift all boats, sure. put your boat where the tide is coming in. Yep. And what you know, like I had the benefit of interviewing someone from 
um, someone from Amazon, someone from Walmart, sure. uh, someone from Honeywell, someone from Philips, someone from GE. Um, and then I interviewed a ton of startups. And so if all of these people are acutely focused on this collective direction and you're able to synthesize what they have to say, you can begin to paint a broad picture. And mm-hmm. you know, in that broad picture, imagine the opportunity just for analytics, right? I mean, I'm not even talking about who's gonna build the next device that buzzes you in or the next device that's a, you know, a, a lighting fixture on your wall. I mean, just the opportunities for companies that are focused on analytics is massive in that space. So that's the idea. I mean, I did another series on the future of um, elections. Okay. And so, you know, we just, a lot of people don't know. In the United States, we have over 500,000 elected officials. I mean, a stunningly large number. Sure. And, And, right, and that includes everyone from the PTA to in one uh, in one area, there's a dog catcher that's that's an elected official up to the president of the United States. Right. And we just had an election, the most consequential election in our lifetime, where 54.5% of the electorate voted. Yep. That's it. Yep. And stunning, but which is, by the way, the lowest percentage of participation in any major democracy. Interesting. And, and not only did do we not offer internet voting, uh, at it, for the presidential election, we don't even offer internet voting for a PTA election. But in some countries, for example, in Estonia, they have nationwide internet voting. Right. And so, is that an inevitability? Is that a big business? Is that a place where, um, you know, I, I personally I find it stunning. You know, you when you when you see protests, um, more than half the people protesting likely didn't vote. Yeah, I know that that blows my mind right. too. And so that's that's upsetting. And, and so you wonder, OK, so so what does it take? Because, you know, we would have had a very different outcome if 60 percent of people voted. The sure. in fact, if 60 percent of people voted, it's highly likely that the popular vote would have correlated with the electoral vote, let alone if 70 percent of people voted. Sure. And, and we could get into why the podcast gets into why in a three part series. But but what what is it an inevitability? I, I, I try to approach it from a. A, uh, an entrepreneurial perspective, is it an inevitability that um, we will have internet voting? If we do have internet voting, will that correlate to more people voting? That's an interesting question. Yeah, I guess. And, and then finally, um, if more people do vote, would that, I mean, I, transparently, I would have liked it if more people had voted and if the popular vote had correlated with the electoral vote, but, but, you know, so, but, but is there a business opportunity there? So I look at all of those things and, and try to identify verticals. Like, I think it's clear that at some point in the future, and there are plenty of problems to be concerned with, with hacking, as we all know, Mm -hmm. but do I think at some point in the future, when you vote for someone in the PTA, you'll be doing it over the internet? Yeah, I do. I can't tell you whether that's 10 years from now or 20 years from now or, but at some point, I think that'll happen. Yeah, well, I, I think too, like people are busy, people don't have the time, want to make the time, or maybe they can't physically get somewhere. But, you know, if they can just pull out their phone or their tablet and take a couple of minutes out of their day or, or do it on their desktop or whatever laptop, I, I think you're going to get way more people just engaged and involved, right? Then kind of how, how it played out in, in 
the last election. And the results might have been the same if 90 plus percent people voted. Maybe it wouldn't. It doesn't really, I guess, matter. It's kind of coming at it to your point from like the business side of that, right? It's like there's clearly a hole in this system and there's a business case that could be built to actually solve that problem. So like, why wouldn't you want to tackle something that big and kind of life changing for, you know, a country, right? Or, Or beyond that. It's 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 a it's a super interesting question to examine and it's super interesting. I have the benefit for that podcast There there are you know professors at Stanford and at Rice and top universities that have testified Before Congress or have written extensively about why some of these hacking challenges are insurmountable okay. and so it was just super interesting to examine um and to, to examine, to listen to their thoughts, to challenge them um, about what is not solvable today and does that mean it's never solvable? Interesting, yeah, wow. That would be actually really interesting. So those are the types of things that the podcast looks at and I'm really excited about it. We have this very extensive um, series coming out as we talk about on the on the smart home. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I happen to think you know we're, we're scratching you know, the very, very, very tip of the iceberg about opportunities in the smart home. And so I'm hoping, you know, these series inspire entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs to think of, of new ways to innovate in spaces that I think are, um, you know, for example, the smart home space that I think you're going to see massive attention paid to in the coming years. No, I 100% agree with you. And I, I think just the more and more people can kind of control from wherever they are, you know, whether it's their home or, or, or something about their life, whether it's they, they choose to have it kind of more automated and done for them or, or a bit more manual or somewhere in between. I think just having that control on an individual basis or, or kind of per family, it, it is just inevitable, right? And as we connect, like maybe maybe I'll be able to push a button on my phone and my coffee maker will, will start brewing coffee because I'm upstairs and I'm too lazy to go like, downstairs until I'm like woken up a bit more like all that, that stuff is that, coming. that's for that's for sure but if your alarm is set ordinarily at 7 30 mm-hmm. and this particular morning it's set at 5 30 yep. shouldn't the, shouldn't the coffee maker just be smart enough to make you coffee so totally. it's ready at 5 35 yep and then based you could throw in like based on your calendar maybe you have an early morning meeting so you have to get up earlier and like it should just all know right and sync that that to me is just completely fascinating yeah, that's what I think. That's what I think the future has in store. So, when is the series going to be available on on the future of the smart home? Um, well, we're in the. I don't have an exact date for you, okay. but um, we've, we've completed all of the. We've completed all of the interviews. We've completed. Um, we're in the final stages of production. So, okay, so kind of like late late twenty seventeen, early twenty eighteen, something. Oh like that? well, well, well before that, it, it'll okay. come out. It'll come out in October of it'll it'll come out in October of twenty. I don't have an exact date, but it'll come out in October of twenty seventeen. Okay, uh, or the earliest early November. No, I I think that's that's great, man, and and that's probably around the time that the show will air anyway. So you know, people can can go to you know, your website and, and get more information about that. And I'll, I'll let you kind of plug that at kind of the end of the show. But I'm curious to kind of step back a little bit and get into some of the more of the stuff that you're kind of doing, um, maybe not on a day to day basis, but 
you know, you're on a bunch of boards and you advise people all the time and you obviously have these videos and podcasts and, you know, and events and stuff like that. What do you kind of get asked all the time that you think that like is maybe kind of maybe not common sense, but you're just like, I, I don't understand why I really get asked these same kind of, you know, few questions all the time. Is, is there any that you were just kind of maybe want to mention kind of as we're coming to the end of the show? I think, you know, the, the thing that most entrepreneurs struggle with the most is finding product market fit is okay. they have an initial thesis for what it is they need to do. And that thesis could be for a product, it could be for a service, it could be for a digital product, or it could be for a physical product. And more often than not, they get it wrong. In fact, almost everyone gets it wrong. And what what most, you know, a lot of people ask me, well, what do I do? You know, I, I, I have this expectation that I would build this service or the site that I get a million users and I got three, not, you know, three million users, I got three users. And so what do I do? And, or, you know, it could be, by the way, that could be for a service, that could be for a product. And what I try to tell people is, um, that's par for the course. What, what great entrepreneurs do is they don't get 100% of it right on their first implementation. They iterate. Great entrepreneurs recognize that when they put out a product, and it's horribly received, they're able to recognize the 99% that needs to be thrown out, the 1% that should be kept, and they come back again. And sure. then when they come out with their second version and 98% is terrible, they keep 2% and they, <laughs> and they do it again. And, and so, you know, when you ask what do people ask, it, it, they, you know, they, they tend to not have the perspective that that's par for the course. Sure. And the name of the game is how do you find the staying power? How do you find the persistence? How do you find the team that keeps going, that yep. iterates? It's and, tricky. Yeah, but you know, the companies that are the most successful have been around a long time. And that may seem like a really stupid thing to say. Like if you're around a long time, you know, you're more likely to be successful. But a lot of times you benefit from things you couldn't possibly imagine. Sure. I mean, I give you the example with Six Degrees early on. You know, if we were around for another five years, there would have been digital photos. Now, that's not something we could have affected, sure. but if we were just around five years longer, we would have benefited from it. And, and a lot of people don't realize that a big piece of success is staying alive, is yep. iterating and iterating and iterating and staying alive. And so that's usually what I try to tell people is set your expectations that it's about going the distance. It's about iterating. And if you find a way to do that, there's no magic bullet. There's no, you know, there's no secret sauce that's going to solve your specific problem. I can offer you my best thoughts. Sure. On, and one of the things I think I, I you know, I tend to do, and it takes a lot of time, but when people, I can't do this with everyone, but when I, um, when I do get involved in a business, I try to understand as substantively as I can what it is they're trying to accomplish and get in the weeds with them. And so, but you know, I'm just one more guy in the weeds. Like still, it still requires, it still requires a, a level of iteration where the driving force can only come from the, the entrepreneur. 
No, I, I think that's actually really good advice. And, and I love when people like yourself that have kind of been there, been super successful in the field, give kind of brutally honest advice like that, right? Because it, so many people think that like, okay, you've had a bunch of success, that the next thing you launch, version one is gonna knock it out of the park, right? And it's like, the, the chances of that, of that happening are basically like you winning the Powerball by like a quick pick, right? Like it can I think that, happen. I think, I think that it's never happened for me. I think that's right. I, I think that's right. It, you know, you, it's like winning the it's it's like winning the lottery if your initial idea works exactly as you articulated. Yeah, and I and I would even think like you think back to like anybody that's been super successful and I and I think like the best example is like Mark Zuckerberg and I don't mean it mean because like he released something for like his school right and you could argue his idea was stolen it it doesn't really matter but like he released that thing he didn't think it was going to be this global phenomenon that it came to there's no way he could have predicted that and i was actually reading an article about some of the guys that worked on the original iphone and yeah they thought it would kind of be cool and and people would use it but they could never have predicted how much of a global success and how popular the iphone is right like it just it wasn't it's unheard of yeah, but I, I mean, what's what's interesting is all of the people that tried to make smartphones and that, I mean, I, I, not even smartphones, let's talk about tablets. Mm -hmm. I mean, the iPad was not the first tablet. No. Well, it and, was, and the iPod wasn't the first MP3 player. Right. But what's interesting is, you know, Microsoft made a tablet mm -hmm. and those companies that did not continuously iterate on the tablet didn't win the tablet space. Sure. I think that's the, you know, now it happens to be that I think, you know, when you talk about Powerball, Apple happens to be one of those companies that puts a lot of work up front into a product mm -hmm. and, and has a tendency to get it close to out of the park on version one. Sure. But Apple's not, Apple's not a startup. I mean, that's Apple, also true, yeah. you know, I mean, so Apple does have the ability to be, you know, if Apple's your role model, well, Apple gets it right on the first go round, so therefore I will get it right on the first go round. That's just not a, a high odds um, prediction. There's not likely to be a correlation between a, a startup founder's success on the first iteration of a product and Apple's. But Apple sure. doesn't get everything right on the first go round. I mean, is the Apple Watch a runaway hit on the first go round? No. But they're doubling and tripling down on it, and my guess is you know, wearables are here to stay. Yeah, I 100% and, agree. So. Well, and I even think back just to like the 90s, like Apple had products that failed in the 90s, right? And they weren't even a startup then. Like I'm like Apple used to make printers and a handful of other kind of side kind of gadgets to a, a computer that never exist or don't exist anymore, right? And so it's interesting. Yeah, yeah. But Andrew, sadly, we're coming to the end of the show. So maybe let's close with mentioning where people can get more information about yourself, the podcast, the videos, your events, and anything else you want to mention? So two websites, um, predictingourfuture.com is where you can um, hear the podcast okay. and my thoughts on verticals right for disruption. And the bootcamp is andrewsroadmaps.com. And you can, reach, you can reach me at either one of those places. 
Perfect, Andrew. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to be on the show, and I look forward to keeping in touch with you, and have a good rest of your day. Thanks so much. Good talking to you. Yeah, thanks. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. The music for the show is done by Electric Mantra. You can check them out at electricmantra.com and keep them in the future.